0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Rick Davis about common gaps in leadership training and common leadership struggles in organizations. Rick Davis, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast.
1: Well, thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have the chance to chat with you about leadership today, um, the gaps in leadership, particularly in leadership training, and the types of struggles that uh, commonly manifest themselves in organizations in relation to leadership. So that's really what we'll be exploring together today. As we get started, I wanted to share Rick's bio with all the listeners. Rick Davis is a retired battalion chief from the Loveland Fire Rescue Authority in Colorado. He was in the fire service for 37 years, including volunteer and military firefighting in 29 and a half years with Loveland Fire. During his 14 and a half years as a battalion chief, Rick served as a shift commander, uh, also the department's training chief. Rick is the owner of Impact Us, cultivating today's leaders providing uh, leadership, speaking, training, and coaching services. He is a member of the John Maxwell team uh, and authored The Furnace of Leadership Development, How to Mold Integrity and Character in Today's World. Rick has a BS in Business Administration, an MS in Executive uh, Fire Service Leadership, and is a graduate of the National Fire Academy's four-year Executive Fire Officer Program. Rick is a veteran of both the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, such a cool background. I'm so thrilled to have a chance to talk with you and explore um, these topics in general, but also, you know, specifically in relation to your your background and experience in fire and rescue. That's, that's just really, really neat.
1: Okay. Yeah. It's uh, been a varied background for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Any any other uh, anything else you'd like to share in terms of your um, background or framing for this episode?
1: Sure. Uh, during my time uh, here with uh, Loveland Fire Rescue as a battalion chief, I've had the opportunity you know, to uh, run several programs. I ran our hazardous materials program, our special operations team, and uh, one of the most enjoyable that I had uh, nearly seven and a half years was our wildland firefighting program which, uh, you know, provided a number of different opportunities to uh, build relationships beyond the organization and see, you know, different leadership styles across a wide spectrum beyond just local government, but including, you know, state government and also uh, the federal government, because, you know, they're so heavily involved in wildland firefighting.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome. And and I have some close friends that have a similar um background to you. you, you perhaps might even know them, so maybe offline we can we can chat about that. Um, but it's a, it's a really, uh, really neat background. And the crucible of leadership, you know, as you're dealing with fire and rescue, and um, th- I mean, this is where like the rubber meets the road of, of just the nitty gritty hard work that has to be done, where lives are on the line, and leading people in that environment, I think, um, is, is a challenge and, and training leaders and training uh, the other firefighters um, is, is a huge challenge. So, so it'll be great to have a chance to, to talk about all of that. Um, so with your experience as a trainer within fire and rescue as, and in your work as a battalion chief, what are some of the biggest um, gaps in leadership training that you've seen over your 30 years?
1: I'll split it out into you know the uh, the wildland arena, then municipal firefighting, and then I'll add in uh, the military as well. Because although firefighting, you know, fire is the same, you know, through all three of those realms, the approach to leadership is absolutely different. I'll start with the military first. You know, when an individual joins the military, you know, as an enlisted person. You know, they are shipped off to, you know, one of the boot camps and, you know, immediately, you know, introduced, you know, to leadership principles and concepts. And, you know, sometimes, you know, when they get out in the field, it can be good. You know, it can be bad. You know, jumping over into the wildland arena, the National Wildfire Coordination Group, you know, they have a standard curriculum for people who are entering, you know, the firefighting world. And part of that does include initial leadership training. And then as a person, you know, progresses, you know, through the various positions, that leadership training, you know, gets elevated. Now we enter the municipal firefighting service and it can be all over the place. Although the National Fire Protection Association has, you know, written standards for, you know, fire officers, there are many organizations that do not teach any leadership to their people until it's time for them to step into a supervisory position. And and unfortunately, our organization was like that, you know, for years. And uh, it got changed in 2009, uh, when we had a fire chief that came in here who saw the value in leadership training and what we needed to do. I've always been an advocate that leadership training should start, you know, just like in the military, or in the wildland arena right out the gate don't wait and bring somebody into a fire academy you teach them all the technical aspects of the job you know send them on out you know to a fire station and then you know they progress through their career And they might progress up to be you know a driver and then one day they say hey i'm interested in being a lieutenant or a captain and somebody goes oh, you know what, I guess we better give you some leadership training. So there could be a gap in there that needs to be filled. Here in the state of Colorado, when uh, someone decides to progress up to those uh, officer ranks, there's levels called fire officer one and fire officer two, you know, there is some leadership training that is provided then. But I see the gaps, Jonathan, leading up to that and then following after after that. And one of the things that's associated with the gap when it tries to get filled is, you know, we draw from many times the same family, meaning the fire service. So we get a constant diet of, you know, firefighters talking to firefighters and there's not an outside perspective, which now creates another gap.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I I completely agree that we should be talking about leadership principles from day one uh, with everybody. Now, recognizing not everyone will end up progressing into formal leadership roles, but everyone will have the opportunity to lead others in some capacity, even if it's in more informal ways. Uh, And so having at least the baseline understanding of the core principles, um, even if it's just for self-leadership, for self-mastery, you know, those sorts of issues. I, I think it's really important that we we talk about leadership early and often with everyone. And of course, if someone takes on a formal role, then there's gonna be more um, preparation, there's gonna be more training. You can have leadership development programs that are targeted towards, uh, you know, particular subsets of individuals that are high potential individuals. Um, but that, that doesn't mean that we don't provide leadership training for everybody um, so that everyone can can really benefit and leverage their own capacity to a yeah. greater extent. And I think especially in the military and the fires um, and rescue arenas, you know, I, I just think so many of those leadership principles are going to be so key given the nature of the work that is being performed. Um, so so I completely agree there and I appreciate you pointing out some of those types of, of gaps. Um, something else that I've thought a lot about in terms of leadership gaps is that, in my experience, a lot of a lot of, and this isn't you know specifically in, in the military or in fire and rescue, but generally speaking, when I'm thinking about leaders and organizations and where the gaps might exist, um, so many leaders in formal roles, they arrive at that position um, due to their technical expertise, at the lower level. So perhaps they were an excellent salesperson or they were an excellent coder, or they were, um, you know, a a really great, um, uh, person on the production line or, you know, whatever, you know, they, they, they have, they have technical skills, they had capacity, they had capabilities, not necessarily any leadership demonstrated leadership ability, but they were good at their job. So they were promoted. And now they're supervising or they're managing or they're leading people. And it's a different skill set altogether. And especially if they haven't been trained at all along the way, now they're in this new position um, and and they're really not sure what to do. And so they just end up doing, they end up mimicking what they've seen other people do in the past. Hopefully it's been good, but a lot of times they're going to be mimicking um, less than ideal types of behaviors and sometimes quite dysfunctional or disruptive types of behaviors that aren't healthy. For the organization or for their people. So, so we absolutely need to um, keep that in mind as we're selecting potential leaders in formal roles, uh, providing more training upfront, as you mentioned, absolutely, but being more cognizant of it's a completely and an entirely different skill set to be able to be technically good at a job versus to, to be effective at leading a team of people or a large group of people, the strategic thinking that's involved um, at that point, the ability to influence, the ability to effectively communicate and articulate um, core ideas and to, to, to generate buy-in amongst a large group of people. These are all the types of skills that are needed. And frankly, a lot of leaders don't really have that um, and th- when they find themselves thrust into this new role And I often think about the Peter Principle, which you're probably familiar with, but the Peter Principle stating that people are often uh, promoted to their level of incompetence. So you know, we we get promoted because we were good at our job, but eventually you get promoted to a level where you're not good at your job anymore. (laughs) And so you end up, if you're not careful, you can end up with a lot of people in a lot of positions where they're not actually very good at that position. They'd be better if they were uh, one rung lower Um, doing what they did really well in the previous role. So these are all the types of things I think we need to carefully consider that organizational leaders need to carefully consider as uh, they try to staff their organizations, they try to create leadership training to better prepare the people in their organizations.
1: You not only hit the nail on the head, I would say you hit the railroad spike on the head and drove (laughs) that into the ground. Uh, as I was listening to you, I just was thinking back of many, many scenarios that I have witnessed. I have seen over the years, you know, start with what you're talking about, you know, the technical and the tactical competence, you know, um, As I was a battalion chief, you know, for a little over 14 years, I would have people on my shift that I had absolutely no question whatsoever about their courage and their bravery and their ability to pull up in front of whatever emergency was unfolding before them. And they could very technically and tactically proficiently handle that calmly and coolly, you know, no problem whatsoever. But then as I got to know them differently, you know, as i them being in a supervisory role, it's like, huh, you know, when you look at emergency services and emergency response, and initially when we started out, we were working a 24-hour shift. And just last November before I uh, retired from the fire service, we went to a 48-hour shift. So when you look at whether a department is working 24 or 48 hours and you break it down, let's remove the large cities, you know, like uh, Denver, FDNY, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, but even they have slower stations there too. When you break that time period down that you're on duty, emergency response only counts for a small portion of it, but we spend a lot of time with each other in the rigs where. It, like pack animals, you know, you got to go to the grocery store. You don't send one person. Everybody piles into the rig and they go down. So you're locked up with people. So these same folks that I saw that were very, very good at the emergency scene, wow. Now when it came down to handling issues, you know, personnel issues in the fire station, you know, lots of times they were not they were not equipped. You know, and sometimes what I saw too, Jonathan, is they would be afraid to ask. They were afraid that they would appear to be stupid, you know, that somebody would think less of them. And your comment too about their modeling, uh, you know, that, that certainly <laughs> applied to me, you know, as I was growing up through high school, coming into the military, you know, modeling a lot of, you know, leadership behavior that, you know, was, you know, very authoritarian, but, you know, an in, incorrect, incorrect style. And so, yeah, there's there's just so so much. And, and one other thing I'd like to add on this particular topic also, I ran our department's recruiting program for three years. And there's a lot of people out there that you know want to be firefighters. And i have seen, you know it change you know after nine uh, eleven, you know there were a lot of people you know that are motivated from a patriotism standpoint. And that's changed. Uh, but what I also have seen is a lot of people who are into the sports medicine, sports fitness. You know, they want to come into you know the job. What I would encourage our people to do, or anybody who is helping us on interview panels, is look beyond someone who just. Or not, I shouldn't say just. Look beyond someone who wants to come on board as a firefighter. What is their future potential for the organization? realizing you're 100% correct. There are some people, you know, they should only go so far and it's a disaster when they go further. But let's look at people when we're interviewing and see what that long-term potential is for them that we can draw that out of them. And what are they bringing into the organization? What are they bringing into the organization from a leadership perspective right out the gate? Not five or 10 years down the road, but the minute that they show up on day one of the Recruit Academy, what are they bringing and demonstrating?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And again, I, I think it, it's important to recognize that everyone has the chance to lead. So you don't have to be in a formal role. You don't have to be a battalion chief. You don't have to be, you know, a vice president or, or a team lead or a division. Um, director or whatever in it, you know, whatever organization we're talking about, everyone has the opportunity to influence and um, to demonstrate leadership capabilities. And so we want to help uh, develop those capabilities in everybody. But there's also no, there's uh, no shame in Mm -hmm. sticking to what you're good at, right? And so some people who just aren't going to probably ever grow into being a really great formal, like a leader in a formal role, that doesn't mean that they can't be awesome at their job. And, and you can help them develop their greatest potential within that sphere of, of their capabilities uh, and grow and be fulfilled and, and they can still have opportunities to lead just in less formal ways. And that's awesome. So we, we definitely want to promote that and, and then also make sure that there's a, a clear succession planning and a pipeline of good leaders to move into the formal roles as well. Um, I, I've often seen individuals who uh, you know, speak, going back to people being promoted to levels where they're not capable anymore, and the Peter Principle, you know, I've seen people who were so good at their jobs and then they were promoted and they were so bad and it was it was so it was it was it was unfortunate for the organization who suffered because they had poor leadership, but it was so unfortunate for that person because they they were put in a position where they weren't going to be successful. So part of our job in developing leaders and in training leaders is to also help them understand um, that we want we want to leverage people's talents and capacities and capabilities. Um, stretch people to the extent we can and help people grow, but also recognize where people's strengths lie, right? And, and, and leverage those strengths. And if that means that someone will spend 30 years and never be a battalion chief, that's okay. Like they, they can still have an amazing career and do a lot of good and help a lot of people and have a great influence on the organization. Um, and, and that's totally fine, so I think if we if we can balance all these different elements in the mindset then then that will make for more healthy organizations. instead, what often happens is is people feel like um, you know a c suite level um, set of executives um, or even kind of lower middle management b p level type people um, they, they they see someone who's been loyal to the company. They see someone who's developed over time and had all these different roles, and they figure, well, they've been with us for 10 years, 20 years. They're ready for the next position. They're ready for the next level up, and they feel kind of this duty to this person, which frankly, I, I appreciate that they would have that kind of loyalty to to their people, but they 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 then promote them out of a sense of kind of duty and loyalty as opposed to are they actually good for the job? Are they actually capable? And instead of looking around and scanning the environment for the, for the people in the organization or external to the organization that would actually really thrive in that role, they end up giving it to a person who you know probably isn't gonna be as good. Uh, and, and it's just unfortunate. It's unfortunate to that person. It's an unfortunate um, situation for the organization. So balancing all of that is essential. Well, you've you've mentioned a lot of different um, areas where people might struggle um, in leadership within organizations. Uh, Another one that I thought maybe we could talk about for a minute is around the idea of developing trust. And I I suspect within the you know I I never served in the military, um, but I suspect within the military in combat types of situations or fire and rescue emergency services, these are you know very challenging types of situations. Um, people's anxieties are high. Um, and I imagine in those, those types of situations, um, you, you have to rely so much on the trust that you've built in the relationships that you've built with your team. Otherwise you can't really get through those really tough moments. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how leaders can develop that trust. Maybe any examples that you've seen where, where it. They didn't develop the trust in kind of detrimental kind of negative consequences, or vice versa, where they they did a, a fantastic job of developing that trust and that led to great outcomes. Yeah,
1: I want to add for your audience that during my time in the military, it was Cold War time. So I'm not a I'm not a combat veteran, uh, but the trust element, you know, still came into play, you know, in both branches of the military that I was in. Uh, And, uh, you know, before I got into firefighting in the Air Force, I worked out on the flight line. And so there's a trust element there. I worked on the F-4E Phantom uh, fighter jet. So there is a trust element there because there's two people that are going to strap their bodies into a great big hunk of metal, you know, with a lot of, uh, you know, jet fuel and sometimes munitions. And so they're trusting You know, people many, many times, someone who's 18, 19, 20 years old, you know, barely out of high school, you know, it's working on that that airplane. So that element of trust, you know, starts there. But moving over into the fire service aspect, um, trust is a huge, huge deal because of the type of environment that, you know, firefighters are working in. And it starts right out in the fire academy, you know, watching, you know, the recruit, how do they respond to stressful situations, you know, not only physically out on the drill field, but academically in the classroom because there, there's a big academic load that comes along, you know, with preparing for it. And when they move along into live fire evolutions, you know, how are they responding, you know, you know, with that now, Now, it's like, hey, graduation time, you know, a big ceremony, you know, fancy badges pinned, families show up and everything like that. But hey, the rubber meets the road, you know. And how long does somebody go before they're confronted with that call? And that call could be different for various people. I remember a documentary after 9-11, there was a French film crew that was following a a brand new firefighter around in FDNY and for his first year he had not been on any significant incident. His first significant incident was the towers. Uh, And so, you know, that's certainly, you know, stressful, traumatic. And Our organization here in Loveland, I will say, was very welcoming to people. Unfortunately, there are some fire departments that are not that way. You know, it's, you know, they don't treat people well, you know, their first year. Uh, I can happily say we were not and are not, you know, that way. You welcome people in, you know, you and encourage them. And when you're encouraging them and you're treating them like human beings, you're building that trust already in a non-emergency environment, getting to know them, you know, tearing down those personal barriers. Hey, you know, where do you come from? You know, what's your background? What do you like to do on your time off? You know, things like that. What do we have in common? You know, that that relationship building. So now, hey, tones go off. You're piling onto the rigs. You're out the door. Yeah. And what is it? You know, is it you know, a 65-year-old male who's in cardiac arrest? Is it someone who is climbing and they've fallen 100 feet into a mountainous area? Uh, you know, or is it a, a structure fire, you know, with a report of somebody you know trapped inside? It's critical to build that trust ahead of time and not say, well, I'm gonna wait until we get on the big one to see if I can really trust you. Because I believe, Jonathan, that sends a message to people that uh, there's a doubt, there's a doubt in that officer's mind as to whether or not I'm going to perform. And I'll add in uh, something here that applies to our previous conversation. I had a coffee last week with an individual that I know, he works in another fire department. And he told me that when he had been promoted, his immediate supervisor said, I'm watching you, I got my eyes on you and that rattled that guy's confidence. It rattled his confidence to the point that he was not successful, and ultimately, he stepped back down to the previous level. Just those words. So the words of encouragement that can, you know, build people up and start laying down that foundation of trust, and it's like, all right, I I know. I know what they are capable of doing, and that they can do this, and It's huge. I cannot overstate the value of building that trust beforehand, you know, and then it plays out on the scene. And if somebody does get a little hesitant, you know, when they're making a push into a building or, you know, going off the edge on a rope, you know, it's like, okay, you know, these are some stressful, you know, fearful circumstances. Don't belittle the person. You know, pull them aside Uh, over my, you know, time in the fire service. I've seen it in the past where, you know, somebody's made a mistake or an error and oh boy, you know, they're all over them and all that does is just shatter them. It's, that's not leadership, not leadership at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those examples. Uh, Trust is so foundational to good leadership. um, And, one of the best things we can do in preparing the next generation of leaders is modeling good, respectful, trusting relationships and developing those with them. And and they'll be more inclined to do the same thing when they're in leadership roles, training them on how to be humble as a leader, how how to build relationships and how to engender trust, how to show respect. You know, these are the types of things that we need to do, Um, as we're working with people in any organization, uh, probably particularly within uh, fire and rescue in the military. Um, Mm -hmm. We're about out of time today, but before we close, I want to give listeners a chance to um, learn how to connect with you um, so they can reach out to you if they need uh, assistance or just to connect professionally and learn more about what you do.
1: They can connect with me through my telephone number, which is 970 Two nine zero three zero nine two. They can reach me uh, on my email, info at Impactus, I M P A C T U S, Impactus Leadership.com. And that's also my website, www.impactusleadership.com. That's how they can reach out and contact me.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, Rick, it has been a real pleasure talking with you today. Thank
1: I, you. I've enjoyed I- it.
0: I really encourage listeners to reach out to Rick, get connected, find out what he can do for you and your organization. And I hope everyone stays healthy and safe, that you find meaning and purpose at work, and I hope everyone has a great week. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast.